we're back with the Tech Policy Grind. I'm Rima Musa, and I'm a fellow with the Internet Law and Policy Foundry, the organization where the next generation of tech law and policy professionals convene to write, think, and talk about the web, technology, and disruptive innovation. This is the Tech Policy Grind, the Foundry's podcast where we chat about what's going on in the world of tech policy. Our fellow highlights series is back in style. And before I turn things over to today's episode, I want to usher in a little change to our fellow highlights series with a warm welcome to someone you've met before if you've been listening for a while. Drum roll, please. Mary Bagdasarian, class four fellow, frequent flyer here on the Tech Policy Grind as a guest host. And now she'll be spearheading our fellow highlights series going forward. So for this episode's fellow highlight, Mary chats with former Foundry fellow Ashkin Kazarian, who was in the second cohort of fellows. She's currently a senior fellow on free speech and peace at Stand Together, and she manages and develops policy projects on free speech, content moderation, surveillance reform, and the intersection of constitutional rights and technology. She's got a fascinating story. So sit back, relax, or for that matter, walk around or go on a run, do whatever you do when you listen to our show. And most of all, enjoy. Hi, Ashen. It's great to have you on the podcast. Thank you so much for taking the time to, to join us and discuss your journey and life in tech policy. Today, I have the pleasure to have Ashwin Azayan with me, who is a former uh, fellow uh, of the Foundry and a big tech policy person, also known as Ash. But I don't want to do an intro all on my own because I think um, we are very curious about your journey and nobody will tell your journey better than you. Tell us how you got started here. Thank you so much, Mary. It's such a pleasure to be on the podcast. I love everything that the Foundry does. My story, it's it's always both exciting and hard to talk about yourself and your journey. You like try to romanticize it sometimes. Sometimes it's just, you know, a series of fortunate events. Sometimes it's a series of unfortunate events that then turns out led you to something better. Um, so I was born and I grew up in Russia in a family of Armenian immigrants, uh, and both my parents, uh, were teaching. They, they met as grad students at Moscow State University, and then they were both professors there. Um, and I, from the young age, was always drawn to academia. Weird enough, having two academic parents, right? Uh, so I went to college when I was very young. I was 15. I graduated. I went straight into a PhD program. And then around that time, I realized as I started my PhD, honestly, as I was applying to my PhD, I realized that I want to have some real life experience outside of, you know, jobs that I was holding, but I wanted to work on more, not fast paced, but just academic, academic work is so important and it's foundation for everything that happens. But I wanted to do something that was more day to day, faster change. Maybe I didn't have patience. Um, or maybe I was way too young to be in academia. Uh, so I was like looking for ways. And part of my education was going to universities in Europe, going to universities in America, doing semesters or exchange programs, being exposed to 
you know, ways that people study and see legal systems outside of Russia. And also throughout my years there, I became very passionate about free speech work. Um, I think many would understand why you would be passionate about free speech in a country like Russia. That's definitely going through some hard, hard moments right now. And it's not in a great shape as a, as a government or as a nation. And we're hoping that it will get better, but right now it looks very dark. Uh, so I ended up coming to States, getting a law degree here too. And it just so happened that when you talk about the most, you know, exciting and new issues uh, at the forefront of free speech, they were online. And that's kind of how I stumbled into tech policy. But I was, I was in a university in Connecticut that, you know, I was still somewhat new to United States. My experience was very fragmented. Didn't know anyone in DC. Didn't know how the think tank world worked at all. Uh, I found my first job out of US law school on a public job interest database by searching just a couple of keywords, you know, like speech, intellectual property, things like that. And Tech Freedom, this nonpartisan think tank, uh, came up. I applied. I got that job. Um, and out of, you know, other options that I had, that was the only one that was in the policy space, the space of actually doing things that I was very passionate about. So that's how I ended up in DC. And then through Tech Freedom, I, you know, found out about the Foundry. I met everyone in the, at least the DC policy bubble ecosystem of folks who worked in this space. And then it kind of became my mission as just like a side passion of making sure that people who maybe are not in DC or don't have connections to DC know about all these opportunities in this space. Tech policy and tech law is a very fast growing industry, just policy space. And there are so many jobs and opportunities and also needs for talent to keep coming in. Uh, so I've been in the past three, four years doing a lot of lectures across the country. Anyone who will invite me, I will go and do a lecture at the law school or even at the college and then tell them about opportunities and fellowships and internships that exist and just hopefully be a connecting link to DC. If people are interested in this space, the Foundry, you know, is a great resource. If you find the Foundry, you then find the rest of this kind of somewhat hidden world. Yes, in, indeed. It feels like this space is um, a niche, but then when you are in the space, you are like, okay, this is a full universe. And I think that is the misconception about tech policy, but I agree with you on the need for more diverse people and more talent in general. And super excited that you are giving lectures and just raising more awareness around this. Um, so, and what it is that you do now? I have had a very interesting career journey. So I spent four years at Tech Freedom and I've learned so much there. And Tech Freedom was this, as I said, nonpartisan think tank. But, you know, one thing you learn about DC is like a lot of organizations have these words that without deciphering, uh, you don't know what they mean. So what it meant was Tech Freedom actually worked with both left of center and right of center groups who were aligned on just values and ideas that they believed in and what Tech Freedom believes in at least when I was working there, you know, I don't want to speak for them now, was protecting the First Amendment online, was protecting civil liberties against government surveillance and free markets. So I had this incredible chance to work with both coalitions left of center and right of center 
And then I ended up at this small tech company called Facebook, that then turned into this company called Meta. I was there for two years until the first round of the tech layoffs that happened last November. And let me tell you, as an immigrant, um, a child of immigrants who is also an immigrant, I that was a that was a hard time. That was a stressful time, partially because you know you have like sixty days to get a new job and a new visa, or you have to leave. Um, I was so grateful for this community that I have built, and I was so lucky to meet because they really supported me. They stood up, and not just me, everyone who was in this position. Uh, people were so kind and trying to be helpful and making connections. And my phone wouldn't stop ringing because even folks who I wouldn't expect to reach out were reaching out. That was both a really hard time, but also a very inspiring time. And it inspired me to even do more and try to give back. And now we're seeing other rounds of tech layoffs happening in other tech companies and at Meta again. And if anyone is listening who is going through that, please reach out to me. Uh, I'm happy to be a resource. I'm happy to try and help. So yes, I did that for two years. I learned a lot working at Facebook. And I got to say, everyone I worked with is an incredibly brilliant and kind person. And that, like, I miss them so much. I miss working with them. They're brilliant. And I was learning from them every day. And I think it's a very important experience to actually see things from the perspective of a tech company. Uh, because sometimes, you know, especially when you're just in civil society, you have your talking points about, you know, big tech companies can comply with this and this and this and this. And then you're inside a tech company, and you're like, oh, my gosh, like the size of compliance that we have to build for this regulation or that regulation is huge. It's, it's not as easy. It's not a magic wand that you like wave and it appears. So that was incredibly important experience for me to gain, I think. And I now am with Stand Together. Stand Together is this incredible organization that consists of different under organizations under it. It's a network. Uh, I do research for them and I also help them define the strategy in the digital free speech space. Uh, they do a lot of grant making. They support groups and in a very nonpartisan way, try to you know, protect free speech, uh, protect free speech online, and also fight polarization in our society. It's been a very eye-opening, actually, process to see the other part of it, the, like, peacemaking part. I'm on the free speech and peace team, and the peacemaking part has been amazing. There's so many organizations and communities that work on countering all those horrible polarization and, you know, hatred uh, that we see online um, and healing our communities and making sure that they're stronger, which is, I think, the most important foundation for a democracy is having a strong civil society that can disagree, but still cohabitate and collaborate and come together over community issues. So I've been there for a few months. I'm very excited to be there. I'm very excited to keep fighting for free speech online uh, across the country, across the globe, and collaborate with a lot of new partners and some old faces. It's been it's been great reconnecting with everyone. Thank you so much for sharing that inspiring story. The keywords that popped in my mind were resilience, perseverance, and just you know um, some luck, as you said before in your answer too. Um, 
but overall, I think everything happens for a reason. Maybe we just see that a bit later. So you worked across um, academia, private sector, and civil society, and also you have, um, you know, educational background in U.S., in Europe, uh, in Russia. So how do you think? But they, but your work focuses more on U.S. and you work more on the U.S. Um, tech policy issues. So how do you think your um, cultural and educational background and experiences uh, impacted your perspective on more U.S.-focused topics? Growing up in a... I was born the year Soviet Union collapsed. Here I am dating myself. But I was born in 91 when Soviet Union collapsed. And I remember as a kid, the 90s were really rough years in, in Russia and in Armenia. And they were trying to build democracy, but they were all of these echoes and leftovers of the Soviet Union authoritarian regimes that then came back when I was in college. And I saw, I mean, let's call it what it is, Vladimir Putin and his government taking away free speech one by one by shutting down newspapers and putting journalists in jail. And then the last bastion of free speech was the internet. And the bastion of free speech was also the internet in Armenia when a couple of years ago, Armenia organized a bloodless revolution, uh, you know, and overturned a quite corrupt government. Current Armenian government, you know, people have different opinions on it. But if you look at human rights stats that Armenia has, at freedom of press, it skyrocketed. And I think the internet has a lot to do with it. And free speech is the leading, you know, you, you have to shine light on issues. Uh, truth sets everyone free, all those corny things that are true. So having that experience and, you know, working with some journalists, knowing some journalists in Russia, um, it created this core belief that free speech is number one value if you want to build a strong democracy. And I don't know if maybe authoritarian vibes follow me where I go, but I moved to United States and now we're we're having these very populist conversations about regulating speech in the United States. And, you know, it, it's always hard because people talk about lawful but awful speech, right, online, speech that's horrible, speech that I've, I mean, I understand as a woman, <laughs> as an immigrant, as a person who just exists online, that the internet is not a cozy and safe space. But at the same time, when these conversations happen, I'm, I'm very shocked. Uh, I, I think about two years ago, Senator Amy Klobuchar from Minnesota introduced the Health Misinformation Act, where she was suggesting that a government agency would tell what's medical misinformation and what's not, and then enforce it and platforms be responsible when they host medical misinformation. I find that truly, I don't like using the word crazy these days, wild, unhinged, deprived of reality. When you give government power to regulate speech, especially speech that, I'm sorry, uh, this government has changed their mind on what medical mis misinformation is quite a few times because data changes and evidence changes and we get we get new evidence and, and things we believed in three years ago might now be debunked. I'm a big believer that government should not be regulating speech. It's not that, it's not, you know, that deep. When I was at Tech Freedom, I worked a lot. And now I'm coming back to limiting government surveillance as much as we can, especially government surveillance that sometimes we don't even know about, just bulk collection of data of Americans and non-Americans. That all definitely is rooted in growing up where I grew up. I don't, I don't know if I would have the same beliefs if I grew up somewhere. I don't know, 
in California, let's say in Glendale, where a lot of Armenians are? Yeah, I, as a fellow Armenian who also moved to US, I can relate to your points. Um, and I think we live in fun and challenging times. And also another thing is that there are too many developments happening at the same time. So I think it's um, fascinating where we can land after all of this. Uh, and so you already touched upon this a bit, but I would love to Uh, prompt you more to talk about some issues or developments that um, are ongoing now that give you hope and maybe something that is just keeping you up at night. Hope is the hardest thing to find. There's a Russian saying, hope dies last. I really hope hope dies last because I moved to DC and I started my job right after law school graduation in 2016. And let me tell you, I think the civil society our society in general after 2016 election has been much more tense and unforgiving of each other than it was before. Um, and so it's hard to find hope in it. So let's, let's start with the things that keep me up at night. So let me be clear, tech companies, bigger size, especially have messed up many times. So have middle-sized tech companies and startups. Um, when big tech companies mess up, Often it has effects on a bigger scale. Sometimes they do, they make decisions that are not rational or they make them in a span of a moment, you know. And after all, we forget that platforms, they have, especially the ones that are publicly traded companies, they have these responsibilities to their shareholders and to the bottom line. And all of that pissed off a lot of people and legislators. I understand that. But then somehow, you know, we arrive in a place where we want to regulate speech, right? I think what they want, they basically want, their, the result that they want is to make these tech platforms suffer, to make their bottom line suffer, maybe. But the unintended consequences that come after it are the ones that affect speech and people. An example can be the Earn It Act that's currently on deck. It's this legislation that would amend Section 230, but it also would uh, basically break end-to-end encryption. Bringing end-to-end encryption is going to hurt dissidents, journalists, everyday citizens who are, you know, just trying to protect their private lives. And then an example that has happened would be the 2018 passage of SESTA-FOSTA, this bill that amended Section 230, the only bill that has, that there's a very long story that I think there are other episodes of this podcast that talk about SESTA-FOSTA. But what it did and the result of it was The the tagline was, we are trying to protect victims of sex trafficking. Who wouldn't want that? Anyone with a heart would want to protect victims of sex trafficking. But what ended up happening was it didn't actually help victims of sex trafficking. Sesta Fosta has been used by prosecutors, I believe, like under five times in, what, these five years. Uh, but it it really hurt the sex worker community. They put them in danger, more exposed, because they didn't have these online spaces where they could keep each other safe and communicate. It pushed them back to the streets. And there's a lot of research done about this, and it is heartbreaking. So we've put more people in danger under the flag of helping people. And that's what keeps me up at night. This, like, we're saving X, and it's usually like women or it's kids. It's all these groups that everyone wants to help. But what they try to achieve is never, it, it's never like the consequences, they hurt the ones who are marginalized the most. 
Yeah, definitely. We live in interesting times and tech policy is never boring because of that. Um, but I think it's also because there is lack of understanding of how things work. And I think you have a very unique perspective, uh, having worked in, you know, with different stakeholders and uh, at, you know, in private sector, in academia, and now again in civil society. And um, I think we need more of that. And I don't know how we can get there because we always talk about dialogue or awareness raising, but I don't know how we can enhance this. Um, so I guess my next question would be, what is on top of your mind? Let's say if you had a magic wand, what policy change or any change you would have proposed to address some of these issues that we're discussing? Magic wand, I wave it. And hopefully it doesn't have consequences. You know how usually like when you ask a genie for a wish, there's always a backfire. Um, magic wand, no, no further consequences. I would really reform the government surveillance apparatus that exists in the United States. The United States likes to, you know, uh, talk the talk about human rights and, you know, criticize our company, uh, our countries, I'm sorry, and criticize companies that collect data, right? If you look into it, there are secret courts, quote unquote, that have proceedings that we have no um, oversight into. There's some semi-government government bodies like P-Club uh, that do some oversight, but it's not enough. And the public doesn't know enough about this. The public doesn't know about Section 702. That is a tool that actually ciphers all this data of Americans and non-Americans and then creates a database that law enforcement can search with no warrant. Asking for a warrant should not be a luxury. The Fourth Amendment exists for a reason. So I would reform Section 702. I mean, I would get rid of it altogether if I could and make Fourth Amendment protections online stronger. And, you know, we don't have a federal privacy law either. But I think a place to start with all of this is actually surveillance reform. If we care about everyone's safety in their data, like this is where we start. We're protecting from the most powerful actor there is, United States government. And if this is a democracy like we, you know, hope and claim it is, that should be a no brainer. Uh, yes, privacy became a buzzword in U.S. in the recent years, especially. Um, but I always have this um internal tension um, when we talk about privacy in U.S. versus when privacy is discussed in Europe or globally because the understanding around privacy is completely different. Um, and I guess my next question is, how do you see um, the reconciliation between, you know, free the strong free speech protections in U.S. and having a meaningful privacy system? Um, and whether it's regulation or just a different framework to have better privacy protections in the U.S.? That's a very good question. I think when it comes to privacy, and you're right, it's a buzzword. People use it and they mean different things. We have been, especially when we talk, so now I'm going to say commercial mm -hmm. privacy, right? Because privacy from government and protection of everyone's rights and, you know, their privacy from the government, I don't think it really overlaps with the First Amendment. Like, it can be done very well. And if anything, it, it is needed to be done. But the thing about commercial privacy is that we, yeah, we haven't been legislating on federal level. Uh, I mean, Congress is, is quite an interesting machine in general, and very rarely they get anything done aside from getting sound clips from hearings. But 
in California, for example, California keeps passing privacy laws. Like they've passed two major ones. They now have their own agency. Like, you know, they're really, they're really embracing the whole federalism idea, I guess. Uh, but what happens is basically companies that are different sizes who can comply with California, they just, whatever California says, they just comply across America because it's easier that way than just trying to figure out which user is in California and who isn't. Same applies to European regulations. You mentioned Europe. Europe doesn't have the same, I would say, pyramid of values of human rights um, that U.S. does. I would say the First Amendment protections in the United States are the strongest free speech protections in the world. Mm-hmm. You know, end of sentence. Uh, in Europe, it's a much more um, careful balance between free speech and other rights. It's just a different paradigm that they see. But Europe had a different history, so they've come to a different place with different values. Um, but then they export the way they want to regulate. Europe just passed DSA, that I think is going into effect next year, the Digital Services Act. Next February. I mean, some parts will be enacted even before, but yes. I'm very glad you're here with me. I definitely am not a European expert. But what I do know is it's pretty bonanza how they did it, how they did it. Uh, how they structured it, I don't think there is truly a single person or a group of people who knows how to fully comply with DSA. People often in hearings, in even court proceedings sometimes, mix up free speech issues and digital space issues, digital privacy space issues. And that's bad because you got to solve these questions separately. If you're upset about some privacy scandal that a tech company had, it doesn't mean that you need to amend Section 230 that protects third-party user speech platforms from third-party user speech liability. Those just two are not connected. Uh, But in everyone's head, I guess, it's like, oh, tech. Everything I know about tech and I don't like about tech, let's just throw everything at the wall and see what happens. So I'm very concerned that people don't differentiate. For sure. I totally agree with you on on that point, especially. Um, and um, again, going back to, you know, the point on awareness raising and just understanding the lay of the land, I think it's very crucial to come up with better solution than just like not waste time discussing proposals or just ideas that are not, like we won't be able to operationalize those and we should not be even like thinking to operationalize those. Um, but I also want to go back to your point on community that you found uh, in U.S., especially in D.C. And in general, like going back to your early days um, in tech policy, um, let's say if you were to give a piece of advice to yourself in those early days, now looking back, what would that be? I don't think my younger self would listen to my own advice, uh, but I will give her credit. She naturally gravitated towards the right things. That's like the one credit I will give myself. Sometimes I look at my younger self and I, as my sister says, cringe. But there was one thing that I did right. And when I was networking, I wasn't really networking. I was just meeting people. I was meeting people. I was genuinely sharing and maybe sometimes oversharing my story and who I am. But being truly yourself and showing people who you are is the right way to place yourself in this ecosystem. And also... Especially, I mean, this happened in the foundry, but also in just the broader tech policy space. I know, I know a lot of people try, I've seen them try to, you know, network with someone who's like in a high powered position. 
ask people for coffees, ask them for advice. I maybe was too self-conscious to do it. And I wasn't, I guess I wasn't in a place where I was trying to climb a specific ladder. I was more curious about tech law and learning and trying to, you know, make a name for myself, I guess. So I just would make friends with people who were my level, you know, who had similar jobs to me at different organizations. And then I guess as you get older, uh, (laughs) I sound, I sound like I'm a millennial, but as you get older, people who you genuinely connected with and who you sometimes even become friends with uh, are now also progressing in their careers. And uh, through them, you, you meet other people through them, you get opportunities. I have never even thought I would be on panels Mm -hmm. or on podcasts talking about issues or talking about myself and my journey. But then, you know, you show people who you are and some people like that and some people don't, but people who like it, they invite you into their spaces and, they want your expertise. It's, I guess it's not very strategic, but that's one thing, especially if you're in DC, that's my advice is just be yourself, meet people, natural mentors that you just connect with are the best mentors because they care. And then the second advice would be, uh, people do care. Here's my hope. Here's the answer to your question about hope. I don't have a policy area that I have, have hope about. Um, but I have hope because I know a lot of wonderful people who work in this space. People care. And nine times out of 10, when you ask someone for help, they try to help. They like helping. I think that human connection is so important, especially in this digital age where, you know, sometimes we're all on Twitter and it just doesn't feel real. Um, so yeah, just try to create those human connections and and believe in people, believe in the good of people. And I know it will it will have it will yield good results. I love that. I love that you highlighted that this is all about people. I think that's something we forget that even like the companies or the governments are comprised of people and you do it eventually it should be for the people, whatever we do. And and this like every space, especially this one, because it feels as I said as a niche, but it's like a whole world. Uh it's it's all about people. Um and um yeah. Thank you for for offering um, the, those pieces of advice and just making yourself available for people to chat about different aspects of your journey. Um, but I also want to ask you if you have any specific resources or I don't know books that you read or any podcast that you listen to that you would recommend to people that are trying to transition into this space or are just newcomers like early career professionals starting to find their footing here. So obviously the Foundries podcast, is it still called the Tech Policy Grind? Is it still called that? Yes, it is. Yeah. If you're listening to this podcast, good job. <laughs> A plus. My old organization's podcast, the Tech, the Tech Policy Podcast, uh, I think is great. They have, especially if you're a law student, I think they have like, Tech Freedom is known for very deep, deep legal dives. So um Subscribe to them. If you're interested in the Section 230 free speech moderated content is a great podcast hosted by Evelyn Dueck and Alex Stamos. Uh, so it's called Moderated Content. Uh, they're both at Stanford. I find it to be a great podcast. I'm sure I'm missing a couple, uh, but those are great. And then, you know, the algorithm will see what you're listening to. <laughs> Believe in the algorithm and it will show you, it will show you other resources. So that's when it comes to podcasts. When it comes to jobs, um, VIP Foundry, Job Board, great resource, Twitter. 
I've gotten more work opportunities out of Twitter than out of any other platform. Like literally I would sometimes tweet, live tweet a congressional hearing in anger and then it will end up, you know, getting attention of a reporter and then reporter will ask me for a quote. Um, so yeah, I guess <laughs> live tweet things. Um, don't be afraid to put your voice out there. You know, I've started by like writing blog posts for just like a random blog or just your own blog. And then you start getting placements and op-eds and things like that. Um, there's a couple of university centers. So I don't know who's listening. I don't know if they're in school or not, but there's a couple of tech policy centers across the country that are also a great way in. There's one in Colorado, I believe at Colorado State. Um, there is one in Stanford, one at Berkeley. UNC has a great tech policy center. Um, there is one at Yale, Information Society Project, that I think was the start for me of this journey, too. There's one at Harvard. Actually, there's a couple at Harvard, but I think the most famous one is the Berkman Center. Um, NYU, UPenn has one. Uh, I think Cornell has a tech policy center. They're all slightly, they all have slightly different names, but if you search university name, and tech policy usually pops up. Professors just naturally have, I mean, hopefully most of them, they love students. They love helping, um, you know, young talent. So that's a great place to start. And those tech policy centers usually have connections with DC think tanks. And then there are a couple of think tanks in the space that I would say do great work on all the sides of a political spectrum. I would say, obviously, ACLU, there is the Center for Democracy and Technology, who are terrific. There is the Public Knowledge. There is the New America Open Technology Institute. Tech Freedom, who I've mentioned because I am biased and I have worked there. They have a great uh, program of developing young talent. Uh, there is also R Street. Uh, there are groups on right of center. Um, there's trade associations, uh, U.S. Chamber of Progress, NetChoice, CCIA, um, you know, if you look at all the court litigation, they're like the leads on that. And I think it's going to be very interesting litigation. And I suggest people follow it. There's a couple of cases. There is Gonzalez v. Google. There is Twitter v. Tomney. And then in the next Supreme Court term, we're going to see the 11th and 5th Circuit, which is Netra CCIA versus Moody and Netra CCIA versus Paxton. Follow those things. And you'll, as a yellow brick road, it would lead you. It would lead you hopefully home. <laughs> Sounds amazing. So many good pointers for people trying to start out in this space. And definitely a fiery season is coming to all the litigation um, in the litigation land. Um, really curious to see what will happen there. Um, and thank you so much for sharing your journey. Uh, this has been very interesting to hear, you know, how you transitioned from one stakeholder group to the other and all the, you know, especially in turbulent times, and tech seems to be having turbulent times like every other week. Uh, so uh, thank you again for your time. And just to wrap up our discussion, uh, I would love to know what is next for you. Oh, that's, that's a big question. What is next? Now that I can breathe out a sign of relief and I'm finding my footing at my new job, I'm really thinking through the next five years, the five-year plan, very Soviet of me, I have a five-year plan. The five-year plan of how do we protect free speech online and how do we educate the society, you know, general public and also policymakers 
on the deeper issues and on how the internet works. In my previous work, sometimes, you know, I would end up meeting policymakers, very lucky to do that, and trying to explain to them, and especially state policymakers who are so busy in overwork, trying to explain to a policymaker what an algorithm is, is hard. And there should be more resources. And especially with developments in AI uh, that we're seeing right now, like there's going to be even harder questions that some of them I don't even know the answers to yet. So just looking at the horizon of new innovation and how do we educate the public. So when we make decisions about how to regulate or not regulate innovation and speech, we actually know what we're doing. Yeah, that is a big plan. (laughs) And I love the five-year plan. <laughs> I think everyone coming out of the COVID era is thinking about like the next thing, and uh, yeah, I think some people are taking it a bit easy to like to think just about the next six months or a year. But I love that you are thinking ahead. And again, thank you so much for taking the time to join um, our podcast. And I really look forward to following your journey and all the great things that you are going to do. I'm honored to have joined. Uh, If anyone is interested in what I said or wants to take me up on the offer of connecting and trying to help out, if you just, if you spell my name right in a Google search or any search, I will come up and you can contact me through multiple different platforms. So I'm looking forward to meeting new people and hopefully helping them out in this journey. Thank you so much for having me. We will also, um, link um your contact information and add your information to the show notes yeah looking forward to having you back here to hear what else um happens uh, in your journey thanks so much thanks for tuning in to this episode of the tech policy grind if you enjoyed the show get in touch with us at foundry podcasts with an s at ilpfoundry.us or leave us a review wherever you're tuning in. You can also check out the show notes to get in touch with us. I'm Rima Musa, the host and executive producer of the show, and this episode was edited by Evan Enzer and produced by Daniela Guzman-Pena. Our show wouldn't be possible without the help of our team at the Internet Law and Policy Foundry, especially Lama Mohammed, our social coordinator, Allison McReynolds, our Accessibility Coordinator, and Tim Lorden at the Arena Education Foundation. Of course, the thoughts and opinions expressed in this episode don't reflect those of our employers and affiliated organizations of any of our team here at the Tech Policy Grind. That's it for now. See you next time.